Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with special guest Marcia Acker, who is the CEO of Team Catapult. Uh, you have written two books, uh, two more than me, uh, Build Your Model for Leading Change, a guided workbook to catalyze clarity and confidence, as well as The Art and Science of Facilitation, How to Lead Effective Collaboration with Agile Teams. Uh, we're really excited today because we're going to get to talk about uh, the details of, of one of those books, which is facilitation and uh, research leadership. So I think this will be a topic that is very interesting to many, many of our listeners. So thank you for joining us today, Marcia. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here and happy to talk about facilitation anytime. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. We got Jay Chair too. Yeah, I'm feeling a little pressure on how we uh, facilitate this interview. <laughs> what, what is facilitation? Yeah, Does it count? To, like, is it do a good job germane? here? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully we don't uh, underwhelm you. Live role playing. I feel yeah. it. Uh, well, maybe that's a good place to start, Marcia. Uh, maybe I imagine a lot of people have a sense of what facilitation is, but it might be useful to just sort of define it. What is facilitation? Like, when are you doing it? When are you not doing it? What's it look like? Yeah. Well, that's a great. Well, you know, I never thought about it from that perspective. I yeah. Um, yeah, I do think we're doing it a lot of, a lot of times when we're, um, leading any group of people through a conversation, uh, towards a desired outcome. I think the challenge though, um, so I often define facilitation as the art of leading people through a process, uh, towards agreed upon outcomes. But I think the nuance in that is that we because we do it all the time, we're doing it now. Um, anytime you'd be in front of a group of people, you'd likely be facilitating. But because we do it all the time, I'm not so sure that we ever really see it as a skill to develop. And I think that um, is sometimes what gets us in trouble. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of those things, the, the things that you do every day all the time, or maybe some of the best things to think about as a skill for communication, conversation, these sort of adjacent ideas of uh, if you can do those effectively, you get pretty far in life. And so facilitation feels like kind of one of those. Yeah. I think it gets under prioritized a lot of times too, because of that. Or like put in that soft skill bucket. That exactly. Terrible bucket of, yeah. Right, right. Things. Or just because you do something kind of often doesn't mean you're good at it. I heard somebody express it this way of like, you've spent, you know, hundreds of hours driving cars, like you'd be a terrible race car driver, right? Like it doesn't mean you're um, necessarily good at something. When you think of good facilitation, I know you've kind of broken this down into some like key areas and qualities. What are what are some of the top things that make somebody skilled and, you know, a good practitioner? In it, well, in the book, I write about um, the facilitation stance. So I think that much of what makes any of us uh, really phenomenal at facilitation is starting with uh, kind of our core beliefs. I call it a stance, like what's your come from place when you step in front of a group of people. So whether you're formally leading a group of people through a process, which would be kind of on the the formal side of facilitation, or whether you're just simply a leader who's gathered people together um, and you really want to make sure that the group gets to the the reason that they came together. Um, I think there's both the kind of the core beliefs that you'll have, and then also a really clear process about how you get yourself ready to be in front of that room of people. So, so I think it's, it's bringing both of those pieces. It's a, it's, it's a set of beliefs and a stance as well as a process that helps you get ready for it. 
I love that. that. And that's really putting you, the facilitator, front and center in this process, right? Like, how do you want to show up for this for this thing, this facilitation? As we're talking about this, I'm thinking, I'm very much picturing you and a group of people together at the same time, whether in physical or digital space. Is, is that a prerequisite? Can you do async facilitation? Is that a thing? Or are we pretty much like in a group together? You know, I think I think facilitation principles can certainly apply asynchronously, but when like some of the things that I think about in terms of your beliefs will really um they'll come to fruition a lot more, I think, when you're in the room, whether it's a virtual room or a, a physical room with folks. Okay. Nice. And you know, when you think about like communication, people have different communication styles and there's different styles that can be effective. Is that also true for facilitation? Are people going to have like different styles of how they do it and they can be equally effective? Or is it more of like, you kind of all need to be really adhering to some of these practices because it's the best way to do it? Mm. Both and. Um, yeah, we all, we absolutely all have um, different styles of communication. And there will be, you know, we talk a lot about um, giving people a shared language for being able to read the room and make sense of uh, not just the style of communication, but the language that people are using, because it's mm -hmm. often in the language where we'll we'll either be moving the conversation forward or we'll be talking past one another. So, so I think yes, people will have different ways that they facilitate. Like my facilitation would be different than yours, um, JH, or than yours, Aaron. And I think there's some key principles that sit at the core of it. So we talk a lot of times about um, giving people, I like to give people the kind of like, here's some of my beliefs, and then your job will be to create your own model for how you facilitate. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So it, you know, I think there's a both and in there. So some best practices to maybe start from yeah. that tend to work for a lot of people and then find your style within that, or maybe even deliberately break some of the rules if you find that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of those? Intention. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what are some of those? Well, so the first one <laughs> that's often met with an awful lot of um, Scooby-Doo faces of, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, is the idea of maintaining neutrality. Um, and I think anytime I say that, particularly to leaders who whether they're leading interview processes or leading a team who step in front of a room and begin to facilitate, a lot of times they're there because they have actually quite a lot of opinion um, and potentially skin in the game about the outcome of that session. But really effective facilitation begins with a group being able to trust that the person guiding them through a process is, is generally staying out of um, of their content. So we maintaining neutrality becomes about um, dividing that group process into uh, the content side, which will be where people have opinions and where they're making moves and opposing one another. Uh, and then also there will be a facilitation process. So it'll start with an outcome, an intended outcome, and then how you're going to get a group through guiding a group through that process, whether it's going to be answering an initial question, having them brainstorm something, really giving them an opportunity to explore different points of view. So ideally, as a facilitator, when you're in that role, when you've got that facilitator hat on, you're not in people's content. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Does, this, does this almost mean like before you set up this discussion and meeting or whatever it may be to, to have this facilitation, you need to almost check how strongly you feel? Because if you are like so strong towards one outcome, you probably actually maybe one don't need a facilitation session, but like two are not going to be a successful facilitator. Yeah. But then if you are more, I lean a little this way, but I actually want to really hear this, then it's like a good, is there almost like a prerequisite step here of making sure you I- can do this? I think that's a fabulous way of saying it. Like how, you know, as particularly when leaders step into the role of facilitating, I often say, how much do you care about the outcome or how much um, opinion do you want to weigh in on? I'll bring facilitators in to facilitate conversations, even in my own company that I care Mm -hmm. deeply about, because there there will be places where I know I can't hold the process. I've got too much of an opinion and I actually don't want to worry about the process. I want to be, I want to be completely in it. And then there are times where I'm, I'm okay. I'm genuinely curious. I can, I can see the process. I can help us get through that. And I want to hear input from others. And so, yeah, I think there are times where you want to just tap a colleague or somebody else on the team and say, Hey, I need you to step up um, Mm -hmm. today and facilitate this conversation for us. Cool. And then, uh, so say it's a situation where you don't feel that strongly, you feel like you're able to be a good facilitator. If you do have like a slight bias, you know, towards option A versus option B or whatever, like, do you disclose that to the group to like be honest? Or is it more of a like, you just need to really do some work internally to to put it out of mind? I think you, I think it's a great um, position to always kind of reveal your thinking. People will know. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you feel like you're... Um, sitting in front of a group and you're having to bite your tongue the whole time, then like it seeps out. So um, where you can share like, hey, I'm really I'm really leaning in this direction, but I want to hear your input or I want to hear your input and just know that I'm going to make the final decision. And this is where I'm leaning right now. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I think one of the things about um, this comes into what's your process for getting ready to facilitate is the upfront planning and design of where you're talking about what's the topic, what's our purpose, what's the desired outcome, and then more importantly, what's the scope of authority for the team? Like, what are they being asked to do? I think one of the greatest challenges in in all of our meetings today is where we as leaders aren't clear about the decision-making process. So we, mm-hmm. we can tend to open it up for a great big discussion, a two-hour two meeting, a three-hour meeting. We get everybody's voice into the conversation and we start to ask people to do the hard work of um, either coming to consensus or narrowing it down to a couple of recommendations. And then, and then somebody goes off and two weeks later, you, you hear either through the grapevine or back in the same meeting that a totally different decision was made based on mm. the one that you came up with as a team. And I think that's where trust gets broken in the whole meeting process. I think that's where we see people start to push their chair back from the table or multitask and be like, I'm, I'm confused. I don't know mm-hmm. what my, what the ask of me is. And Hey, if you're just going to decide, then tell me what you want me to do and I'll, and I'll do it. So I think that's where people really check out or they get apathetic about the whole meeting process as it gets really confusing about what we're doing. Yeah. I have two follow up questions. One is let's dig more into that preparation process. Cause I think, you know, fail to plan, right. Let's plan. Um, uh, but also, uh, do you always know you're going to enter a facilitation moment, right? Like, does every meeting need a facilitator? Is it safe to say you are meeting, you're the facilitator, 
and therefore you need to plan as such. Um, but maybe we can apply some of those planning techniques to uh, maybe your time to plan is 30 seconds because it's happening right now. Um, but yeah, let's, let's walk through some of those planning steps. Well, I think so two, two really great questions. So the first would be what's the, what's my process to get ready? Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and I think in that process, one of the first steps is answering that question, Erin, that you're posing, which is why are we gathering together? Um, and to what degree of collaboration do we need? Like, is it, is it a low degree of collaboration? What's the topic or the amount of input that we want to get from people? Is this more of a informal, Hey, let me tell you what, what happened last week kind of status uh, brief out, or are we just sharing information or do we truly want to collaborate together? It's more of, you know, on the higher end of collaboration, it's more of a strategic decision or it's a really um, sticky issue that's come up and we really need to come together and think together. So mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. on somewhere on that continuum will be, if it's just informational, more of a monologue, more just kind of going around the room and sharing status, probably don't need a whole lot of time to design your facilitation and probably just need in the moment facilitation, meaning that you in that role are paying attention to everybody getting an equal chance to voice and participate. And you're, you're just watching dynamics mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. the way up to, um, you know, on the higher end of design for facilitation, there would be, okay, we want to end, you know, we're going to take two days off site. We're going to be in a highly strategic collaborative conversation. We're having a little bit of a breakdown in our communication internally. We really want to get to the heart of that, understand what's going on in the team, and then come out with a, you know, a, a vision statement. So like things like that would be at a much higher end. And I, as a facilitator, I'm going to do some pre-work. I'm going to ask people to do some prep and getting ready for that. I'm going to have thought through a facilitation arc um, about what are the kinds of questions that we'd be answering as a full group in order to get to that outcome. So I think there's a continuum of it. But yes, does every meeting need a facilitator? Likely. Mm -hmm. uh, to what mm -hmm. degree are they planning? Very much dependent on why we're getting together. Nice. That makes sense. You, um, you know, we, we shared uh, ahead of time some of the key qualities for good facilitation. You have, you have six of them here. So we've covered the maintaining neutrality. The the next one that's listed, I'm very curious about. It says standing in the storm. And I'm uh, not quite sure what that means. I would love to hear more about that. Well, I, I we hold a belief that in good conversation, where we're able to move the conversation forward, there is also difference of opinion. And the way difference of opinion will often come out in group settings uh, is it can look like conflict. Um, and many times, it, sometimes it can look like conflict between members of a group, but I think a lot of times it can be also the, the facilitator, the person sort of standing in that role can become a conduit for it. So groups mm -hmm. can push back on your process. They can push back on um, why you're asking them to do something. So it, standing in the storm is really a, a kind of a core belief that groups are going to need to go through difference and conflict in order to get through to the other side of new thinking, new understanding, and groups are really good at avoiding that. And so as we facilitators step into a room, our job becomes to stay with it. 
like mm-hmm. to stay in the conflictors, to stay, you know, I think about it metaphorically as it can feel a little stormy. Um, and what does it look like to be a calm presence in the middle of that? And be able to help a group stay with it as well. So I often give an example of, um, I was with a group one time, it was a really large group of leaders. So I think we had about 35 people in the room and a pretty difficult topic had been bravely introduced by two people in that group. And it was, um, it was not an easy topic for that group to talk about at all. And so um, we were just continuing to sort of help people voice their own experience, what was going on. And uh, we were sitting in a circle and all of a sudden there was a person sitting right next to me who just jumped out of their seat and said, we need to just take a break. Hmm. Um, I think we need to talk about something, something different. And in that moment, I just said, hey, so this principle really comes forward for me, which is it could have been easy to say, yeah, it feels like it's getting heated in here. The topic is potentially making people uncomfortable. Let's just, you know, let's definitely get up and take a break and and change the subject. And I think that's what we naturally as humans want to do is alleviate the pressure. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, I just said, hey, I think this is super important. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Let's just give it another 20 minutes and then we'll take a break. But if we leave it right now, we're potentially going to miss a shift in thinking for the whole group. And so it's just an example of think of, you know, that's internal work to do because we'll all have our own preference for where we, you know, how we deal with conflict. Yeah. So that's very interesting. feels like an area where having some skill with this could really be be useful because I imagine you also, and there's different kinds of conflict, right? There's like, no, I really think we should have these meetings on Wednesday and not Tuesday, and hopefully it's not too charged. Yes. Um, but then there's bigger conflicts, right? You're yep. getting into um, real identity stuff or really you know, deep yep. emotional charged things. How do you make people feel safe mm. standing in the storm with mm. you? I think some of that just comes from, it's, it's why I talk about starting with your beliefs as a facilitator first. So so somewhere inside of you, you've got to find your belief that says, hey, difference of opinion, even if it's the difference between our meeting on Wednesday versus Friday, in when we have difference of opinion, the task becomes working through it and with it rather than silencing it or avoiding it. Mm-hmm. And and so if you if you hold that belief, then I I do think it becomes about, you know, developing the skills to, you know, how do I navigate that? That's been some of my greatest work is in been in this particular cornerstone of I've been I was super uncomfortable with conflict. I did everything early on in my facilitation career, I would do everything to manage it out of the room. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I thought that there was a difference of opinion around a topic, I'd have people write instead of talk or I'd really constrain the agenda. So I think that it is about developing skill, but it also starts with your belief. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you believe that it's important and I think you then start to signal to a group, you know what, um, I get that this is tough, but if we work through it, 
there's there's new thinking on the other side of it. There's potentially a shift. So it starts with your belief. And then I think creating that trust and container with a group. Mm-hmm. You know, do we have the working agreements that say this is how we're going to handle conflict when it comes mm-hmm. up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels the thing I keep picturing in my head is almost like a hill. Like you're going up one side and you can go to the other side. And it's almost like having like the trust and the confidence and, and the skills to be like, as the kind of temperature is going up and you're coming up the hill, one way is to like just go back down and like take the temperature down that way. But like, if you know, like, no, we just got to get over this crest and this conflict and we'll start coming back down on the other side. Um, there's probably just a little bit of like a willingness to kind of see it through. And is that is that like a fair way to think of it? Mm-hmm. Cool. And and if you've got that vision, then I think the group will start to trust you that, okay, I'm uncomfortable, but they seem to know where we're going. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. They think we're going to come through it. So, yeah. <laughs> What are, what are some other things that you should keep in mind when you're facilitating? I think um, this one, there's one about just honoring the wisdom of the group. And I think that that gets to be really easy to in, um, like intellectually say, of course, um, there's collective intelligence in every group that gathers uh, right up until you disagree with something in the group. <laughs> and, then, and, then you, and then you might say, yeah, like I hear leaders do it all the time. Well, I don't really want to take that to the team because they don't, they don't have that data or they don't have that knowledge or they, they just don't know. Like, I don't really think I want to rely on that group of people to make that decision. And I think that's a tricky, slippery slope when we start to um, hold a, you know, discount the wisdom that sits within, you know, within a group of people. I think sometimes groups might lack some of that um, extra knowledge or pieces of data that they need in order to make a collaborative conversation really effective. But I do hold that the group has the ability to say that for themselves. Hmm. And I think what happens sometimes when we gather people together is that we do all kinds of um dances with the dynamics in the room that actually have people start to hold back their real thinking or their, you know, their real opinion. There's what they'll say in the room. And then there's what they'll say to their friends on a Slack channel or on a phone call (laughs) afterwards, which will be the real, the real piece of data. So, you know, honoring the wisdom of the group comes from the stance and the belief that group has everything it needs they actually do have wisdom. And my job as a facilitator is to make sure that the group's able to tap into that collectively. Mm-hmm. There's probably part of the planning process can help set this up for success too, right? Like if the group really doesn't have the wisdom, this should not be the outcome we're trying to get from this group. Erin, I know- think that's a really great point. You know, one of the pieces about designing that facilitative meeting, again, is what's the purpose? And then who needs to come? And then do we have all of the right voices? So if there's, you know, I think about technical teams who often kind of get um, looped in this trap where there are other pieces of data that they need or there's another expert or another team member that they need to have in that conversation that would really help to inform it. So yes, like, do we have the right people in the room? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The um the next one on the list here is upholding the agile mindset. Um, you know, I work in the product side of things. So I think of <laughs> agile quite a bit. So I'm uh, I'm curious uh, how this one applies. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think there's um, uh, there's lots of talk these days about agility, and there's always the battle of 
how do we how do we do and be agile in our teams? This one really gets at um, just tapping into what are the principles of agility, what are the values of it, and how facilitators like the job of facilitator is not to become the agile process police um, that says we have to have a daily stand up and every day we have to answer these three questions. Like I think facilitation is all about reading what's happening in a group, um, really, again, tapping into the collective intelligence and wisdom of that group. There are times where it's back to that, um, you can start with a process and you can use a defined process, but it's going to evolve. The needs of the team are going to evolve. So what happens when we're holding meetings and we're just, we um, just sort of put the meeting on a rote repeat where we do the same things every time. I think it's one of the greatest challenges to agility is we just, we get tired. We're no longer energized or inspired by the conversations. We're just gathering and going through a, a standard defined process. It feels like it loses meaning. It feels like the conversation gets really inauthentic. We're just multitasking or um, really not having the needed conversation. So upholding the agile mindset is really what are the principles of agility that would inform or sort of behind um, how we gather and how we look at our work and make sure we're upholding those and we're not becoming some the process police. Hmm. How are some examples of how that could play out? Like, let's say we hmm. have, I don't know, a weekly leadership meeting yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the agenda has been more or less the same for a while and we want to keep it from being stale and just everyone playing their usual parts. Yeah. I think a facilitator would come in and say, hey, so I know we gather every week. I'm curious, um, are we talking about the things that we need to talk about? Um, what are we not talking about that's um, missing from our conversations? What would we change about the way we're meeting? Um, I really think it becomes about getting the group to reflect. You might end up doing that in a survey ahead of time if you don't feel like you've got a lot of safety in the group or people aren't forthright in the room. But I, I think that one of the jobs of facilitation is create beginning to create spaces over time where people can be forthright. So um, yeah, I, I think it's about checking in and saying, hey, is this working for us? And are we having the conversations we need to have? Yeah, because all of this, as you, you said in the beginning, is really about trying to get to good outcomes, right? Yeah, I hold a core belief that everything that we're trying to do, um, the change that we're trying to lead, the outcomes we want to have in in organizations, it all comes down to how we're having a conversation or not having a conversation. And I think we do plenty <laughs> um, of not having conversations, but sort of, mm, I call it collaboration theater, where we sort of pretend like we're doing it, but we're not really. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons, you know, I read so much um, over the last three years of the pandemic, you know, written about meetings and workplace morale and burnout and all that. I just, I hold that there's some big part of that that comes right down to the core of how we're having conversations. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about not really doing that, I, I imagine some of that is like not doing these things we're talking about, right? Like not yeah. standing in the storm, not honoring the wisdom of the group. <laughs> what are other ways in which we aren't really collaborating where we are <laughs> instead having collaboration theater? I think some it, you know, some of that comes down to Erin, you've talked about it today a little bit. Like, what are we doing to set up the situation, the 
you know, the container for the group? Mm -hmm. And how do we bring the conversation in the room rather than have the conversation take place offline? So if you've ever had, you can even think about a time, like even if you're listening, like when was the last time you left a meeting and you walked away and there was something that you wanted to say, but you didn't say. Mm-hmm. And I think every time that happens for, you know, if you take a room of 10 people, if 10 people each had two things that they wanted to say that they didn't say, we're missing out on collective intelligence. We're missing out on data. We're missing out on the real conversation. And I think in those instances, that's where people start to feel disconnected or they spend a lot of time having um, back channel conversations. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Aaron, I don't know that you, you or I get uh, accused of not sharing our thoughts very often. <laughs> <laughs> you probably speak out too much of anything. Cool. Uh, I think there was a couple more left. What, uh, what one would you like to cover next in terms of um, the qualities of good facilitation? Yeah, I think the last one is honoring the group's agenda. So this is um, particularly, uh, I think this can be a little bit challenging to wrap your mind around sometimes. So as a facilitator, it's uh, super easy to come in and have done some prep and planning and go, all right, so here's what I think we need to accomplish. Or a leader that says, here's, you know, here's the topic that's on the table today. But what often is missing is checking in with the group about what they want to achieve from the outcome of a meeting. So a lot of times teams will have retrospectives or um, they'll come together and really need to have a collaborative conversation about something that's happening in the team. And I, as a facilitator, can get hooked on um, something that I want the team to achieve rather than something that the team really wants. And so I think one of the ways that this plays out is sometimes you'll see teams, again, check out or not feel like they're really wanting to contribute to a process or a group conversation. A lot of times I think that's gotten to be a wobbly space where it's potentially become the facilitator's agenda that we want to accomplish in a meeting rather than the team's agenda. So if I am a team member and I don't know what's in it for me to come to this meeting, or what I'm what I'm going to gain, or how it's going to help me in my work, becomes really hard to participate. So, it's the principle of just holding the group's agenda. I often say um, sometimes I can get really tied to a group achieving a certain outcome, but they still need to talk about a you know a deeper dynamic that's happening in the team that's prohibiting them from getting to the outcome. So if I keep trying to drive them to the outcome and they keep resisting, it can look like indecision, people unwilling to really commit to the decision or they're holding back, or um, some people will sort of kick up other risk. And so we keep sort of circling around. Those can be indicators or behavioral indicators that potentially we're focusing on the wrong agenda or I'm trying to drive to closure mm-hmm. a little bit too fast. So oftentimes I might stop and just say, hey, like I notice I'm trying to to get us here, but it seems like there's something else we need to talk about. What's the thing we need to talk about? That feels yeah. like upholding the agile mindset. <laughs> I came yeah. in with this agenda. This agenda doesn't feel like the right one now that mm. we're doing it. Let's uh, maybe not be afraid to, to change things. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Is there almost like a facilitation step of like, here's how I see the agenda of the meeting and like, 
pressure test right up front if people agree or not? Or, yeah. or do you kind of feel it out as needed? I think it's great to share all of that within the first five or 10 minutes, like clear purpose statement. You know, the purpose of the meeting today is to come to a decision, get an outcome and, and here are the steps that we're going to go through. And then it's a great opportunity to just test. Is this why people thought they came? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, do you mm -hmm. feel like uh, you see yourself in the outcomes of this meeting? People, some people might say, no, like I have nothing to do with that. So, so you got an hour back to your day. Um, yeah. So I think it's a great place to check. Reminds me of a concept from uh, Seth Godin, uh, the enrollment, he calls it. Mm. So like if you're doing, he, I think he uses it in the context of like giving a presentation, but the idea being like, start out with, you know, this yeah. is what we're going, I'm going to sell you on this today. Or in yeah. this case, this is the outcome we're trying to get to. Agreed? Yes. Yes. Because if the answer to that is no, like nothing else matters. Absolutely. Right. And so really just starting with that, getting the collective enrollment happening um, so that even if the process of getting there gets a little muddied or has to change course a little bit, yeah. at least we're <laughs> trying to get to the same place together. Yeah. I yeah. totally agree. I'm, I'm curious, um, a facilitator can either be like familiar with the group or mm -hmm. kind of like an external party. And is one better than the other? Like if you know the group and you know these people have a little bit of a history of conflict, mm -hmm. this person's brilliant, but kind of quiet. So we're gonna have to pull them in or yeah. these people always agree, even if they don't, you know, like. Is that useful or is it actually better to kind of come in fresh as a like neutral, truly neutral facilitator who is just going to kind of look at the group for what it is and, and navigate it differently? There are certainly pros and cons to both. You know, I think it's, um, I think it's really helpful to have an external facilitator, particularly if it's um, some interpersonal uh, conflict or a team that's gotten off track or, or, you know, by their own definition, you know, feeling a little... Um, stuck where they are. I think it's fantastic to have an outside facilitator because a lot of times if you're not embedded or, you know, less skin in the game, it's easier to see the dynamics and to help the team see the dynamics. Um, that said, I think if you're an outside facilitator, uh, it's super important to have your own process for how you're going to engage with the team and figure out some of those dynamics before you go in. So whether it's surveys or interviews or, you know, helping helping to get you a lay of the land or a picture about what you're going in for. I think that's, um, I could tell you my, that's, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> and anytime I have shortcutted that step because of time or um, resources, I've, I've always regretted it. But I also think that it's valuable to, um, you know, if you're someone who's on the team or familiar with the team or close to the team, Yes, you're going to know all of those patterns. So I think your job then becomes how do you design with a team or with yourself that you feel like you've got permission to name some of those things? Because I think some of the challenge will be we, we oftentimes see things, but can we name them? And do we feel like we have permission to name them? And are we doing it in a way that it feels like we're poking someone in the eye? That's not, mm -hmm. you know, that's not the intent. Really, the intent is always how do we raise the collective awareness of what's mm -hmm. happening in the group? So, and, and you're saying name them out loud to the group. Yeah. 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 yeah, and so like you don't want to say, Steve. I've noticed you're always a jerk, like that. <laughs> you know, but yeah. you know, maybe you know. But um, there will be a behavior that Steve is bringing, right. that just you know, that might say, "Hey, I notice, you know, I notice Steve that you're pushing back on a lot mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. ideas. Can you mm -hmm. say what's behind that?" Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So something with like out judgment, right? Yeah, 
it's having this impact. Yeah. We're, yeah. yeah. We're trying to maybe have a, a different result a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, so I think we want to get to some research applications, uh, which I mean, I'm sure it's been easy to imagine how you can apply this to lots of research settings already, but just yeah. to um, get a little closer to that. So one thing a lot of researchers, people who do research, uh, find themselves doing is workshops, mm. um, you know, of, of various sorts internally. That seems like a great place to apply facilitation. Um, what might that look like in the context of, you know, some sort of workshop you're doing? Yeah. Well, I think of workshops as um, multi-day events often that pull people together. Is that how you would define it? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, what is a workshop? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, collaborative uh, mm -hmm. with probably some structured steps or exercises to, to get at some things from different angles. Um, yeah, I think it very well could be multi-day. I don't think it necessarily has to, but yeah. um, probably I'm an extended time block. It's probably not like a 30-minute workshop. It's probably, you know. I'm picturing post-it. Potentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think facilitation coming into something like that is um, super helpful and likely starts, you know, I often say half facilitation starts before you ever get in the room and half of it happens in the upfront planning and design of how you're going to go about it. So again, what's your purpose? Um, what's the group of people that are needed to help fulfill that purpose? Are you serving that group of people? What do you want their desired outcome to be? Um, anything that, you know, how do you get your, their voice into the design of it? And then that, um, I often think about that arc of where are we going to start? Where are we going to end? And then what's the arc or the experience that we're going to take people through when we're in that workshop together? So I, th I think a lot about designing for experience. What do we want people to um, walk away saying, or how do we want them to feel as part of being engaged in that process? Nice. nice. Is there um, like a rule of thumb for people on like how large a group can be to like, mm. you know, effectively facilitate it? So you know, on one hand, if it's like two people, it's maybe a little weird to be really formally uh, facilitating it. But then it's yeah. also like if it's like 30 or 40 people, it's probably becoming rather unwieldy. And there's probably some sweet spot. Or like, how do you think about like the size of the group? So if I'm planning yeah. a workshop, should I try to have like a cap on how many people I invite or something like that? Again, I think it's about purpose. So are people coming together to collaborate for something or are they just going to learn together and, and contribute ideas? Um, certainly somewhere between eight and 12 is a really nice um, group size. I think I think the group size of 12 is usually my most favorite because if you're designing exercises where you want people to be able to do breakouts or, or go into small groups, 12 is just a nice number. It works yeah. for pairs and it works for trios. Ways, yeah. Yes. So from a facilitation perspective and thinking about changing the frame for participants along that arc, it's really helpful. Um, once you get up into about 25 or 30 people, you know, I think you can still have a, f a forum or a, a large group conversation, but you're you're often going to start to think about how do I divide people up into smaller groups? Because at the size of 30, people are less likely to want to contribute to a, you know, to a full group conversation. And then anything above that 25 to 30 range, you're l really looking at large group facilitation methods. And I think about that as... Um, it's just a small group facilitation multiplied out. So we're often looking at ways to keep people engaged, wanting people to feel like they've got their voice in the space. And then I also tend to lean on um, 
training other facilitators to support that process. So when you get into 50, 75, 200, 300 people, it's super helpful to be able to bring other facilitators in on that journey. So you as a facilitation team are able to guide people through that process. What about uh, uh, in-person versus virtual? Mm. Uh, something we've, you know, we're a virtual company, always have been, but of course the pandemic yeah. brought a lot more virtual use cases to folks. Mm. Do you have, does all, is everything to sort of still apply or are there certain concessions or changes that it's helpful to make in one context versus the other? I think virtual facilitation can be just as meaningful and effective as in the room. I, I still have a preference from the room. I think there's just a different kind of connection, but virtual can be done really well. I think you just have to pay very close attention to what are the norms and requests you have of people. So our, you know, one of the gifts of the pandemic has been the technologies that support virtual collaboration were there prior to the pandemic, but the the capabilities that they have, you know, far exceeded anything. So I often say we need to be able to see one another, hear one another, and be looking at the same thing mm-hmm, if we're going to mm-hmm. be virtually and online. And so I often set rules of we need to be on camera and off mute. Mm-hmm. That's often makes people disagree. <laughs> um, start with the conflict, get the storm start, going right. right away. Yeah, But because, I mean, just like we're having this conversation here today, that's the experience that we're trying to create for people virtually is we want people to be able to get their voice in, not have to fiddle with the mute button. Um, we want people to be able to say something that's funny and hear other people laugh about it. So with mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm. those little nuances, um, create a different kind of container. I think the only other thing I'd say about um, virtual and in-person is that we are in a space of hybrid now. And I think before the pandemic, that was also very true. I'm not a fan of hybrid. I think we're either all virtual or all face-to-face. Hybrid just doesn't work well. I think there are ways to make it work. Um, It'll look like having multiple facilitators and on a facilitation team, somebody helping to guide the virtual participants and somebody helping to guide the, in the room. And somewhere along the way, they're still going to have to see the same thing and be able to get their voice in and communicate. But there's a real shift in power that happens when you have some people gathered in a room together and other people offline. And the people in the room have more power. So it's just something to um, consider in your design. Yeah, 100%. Um, another yeah, another thing you see often with like groups of people getting together to do something, right? A workshop, a brainstorm, whatever, maybe mm-hmm. is some sort of like, you know, icebreaker or kickoff thing to try to get people loosened up and maybe have a little bonding or trust established. Do yeah. you find anything like that useful or are there things there that people should consider? Or is that more of just a like some people do it because they do it type of thing? I love it. I I am. Um, I have a personal uh, bias against the term icebreaker because I I tend to think it's um yeah, it just the way it gets used. But what I love about the concept of designing something at the very beginning, um, I talk about we need connection before content. I have to know who you are, um, why you're here, something about you personally that helps me connect with you before I'm likely to start offering up my ideas or what I think about the content that we're getting ready to talk about. So connection before content, I think is one of the most important ways to start a workshop. 
and it helps with the container and trust building. So a lot of times um, I will often do just a check-in. So something that you want to say that you're um, looking forward to about today, something that you're concerned about, the conversation we're about ready to have. Um, what's something that you're leaving behind that you you know, just have been focused on? So I also think check-ins help us let go of whatever we've been doing prior to rolling up to the conversation. We're, we're in a world today where people just move from one thing to the next to the next. Um, so they help you let go of that, but they also help people just get connected to the content and one another. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, I think it's super helpful. A warm up. Yeah. Yeah. Small talk. It does sound sort of ice. ice it's icy. Yeah. Warm, warm up. Yeah. It's warm like a little up. like, um, <laughs> I, I used to work at, uh, did some volunteering stuff at like this grief camp and they'd always call it like mm. turbo bonding. Like we're going to do mm. some stuff that makes us really connected really quickly. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and I thought that was like a better frame than yeah. Icebreaker. Yeah. I love that phrase. Another thing you talk about is uh, the importance of sort of navigating invisible team dynamics, which sounds like another tricky one. Experience is helpful here, I imagine, but maybe you can give us some turbo shortcuts. Uh, and, and it also sounds like one that could be trickier potentially in a remote setting. Um, but yeah, curious, how do you, how do you start to develop this, this skill? Well, here's, so yes, what I'd say is there's always, um, we talk about looking at the structure of interpersonal communication and trying to make sense of it because there will be the words that we're saying, but then sometimes it feels like it's going well. And other times I feel like if, I feel like there was a shot across the bow, but I'm not certain. So mm -hmm. I think that starts to give um, voice to more of the invisible dynamics that sit in all of our conversations. So I'll give you a really quick example. We yeah. often, um, everything that we say can be coded into one of four actions. So all of our all of our sentences are either a move, they're setting direction in the conversation, or a follow that's supporting the conversation, um, an oppose that's offering correction. It says no, wait, stop, hmm. or a bystand that's offering a morally neutral comment <laughs> on the conversation. Uh -huh. So four actions, and we need all four to be active in order for the conversation to be effective. Hmm. So remember I said earlier, standing in the storm, like we, I'm always listening for the voice of oppose. And when I don't hear it, I used to assume that meant everything was okay. <laughs> what hmm. I know now is that when I don't hear it, it's because it's not coming in the room yet. Hmm. And it means that it's likely gone offline. So I'll tell you a really quick personal story. Um, my daughter and I had a pattern when she was much younger. She's 14 now. But when she was much younger, we had this pattern between us. We'd have the same conversation every morning. It was me asking her to get her shoes on and uh, in order to go to the bus. And she would say to me, I'd say, do you have your shoes on? And she'd say, no. And I'd say, well, <laughs> will you get them on? You know, we're, we're going to be late for the bus. And she'd say, okay. And I come back five minutes later and she'd be sitting in the same place and say, are your shoes on? She'd say, no. <laughs> what are you doing? Playing. Get your shoes on now. She'd say, okay. <laughs> so, you know, walking out the door, I turn around and then, you know, there's a crying child in the middle of the hallway going, but I don't have my shoes on. So, so we had, I would make a move and she would voice a follow. She'd say, okay. But what she intended was an oppose. Mm -hmm. 
So I can't tell you how many times I think that happens in our conversations and meetings. Mm. And so facilitation becomes about can, you know, can you hear the patterns of what's happening in the conversation? Are all four of those actions coming sort of naturally and organically in the conversation? If not, can you as the facilitator start to prompt? You know, what I started to do to change the pattern between Lauren and I was I'd stop, I stopped making moves and I just started to bystand and I'd say, I noticed the bus is going to be here in 10 minutes. What do you need to do? Mm. She began to say, oh, I need to get my shoes on. So, so for her, she needed to be the one making a move mm-hmm. um, rather than covertly opposing me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it sounds like that took more than one trip of the school bus to figure out. And so, and so I, you know, I, you imagine if you're, I guess if you're an experienced, like if you're a professional facilitator and that's literally what you do, you kind of figure out how to get good at this quickly. Um, and, but if you're doing it kind of casually, you find yourself in that role, maybe you figure out what roles people take and what they really mean over time, or you kind of look for signals as they develop even within one meeting. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, if you're, you can do it today, um, like pick a meeting that you're going to be in. And particularly, it'll be helpful if you're going to do this as you get started. It'll probably be helpful to pick a meeting that you're not, you know, the center of attention for, you know, you're not the primary facilitator. And then, you know, just step back, fade back for a minute and, and take about five to eight minutes and see if you can just jot down in code the actions in that conversation? And can you pick out a pattern that might be happening? So uh, a lot of times there will be a pattern between move and oppose for advocacy. Mm-hmm. I, I have an idea. I disagree. I have another idea. Or you'll hear lots of moves, lots of new topics that keep getting introduced, but no follow behind mm-hmm. them. So mm-hmm. those will be like little balls that roll off into the conversation that nobody really picks up. Uh, teams will be really, it's a very common pattern actually for there to be lots of moves. Um, the other thing that can happen is that uh, people can bystand. They can say, oh, I'm noticing this about our, you know, what's happening or I'm noticing this. And there can be a lot of bystands. What will be missing in both of those conversations is, is opposition constraint. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so just see if you can pick up what's in the conversation and potentially what's missing. And then anyone in the group can prompt for the missing action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, no, I just, this is really easy to imagine applying for anyone to just look for these things and a little counterintuitive, which I always like too, which is you need all of these things. You don't want just. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to like it's the type of thing that like as you're live in a conversation, really hard to pick up on the pattern when you start to code something into this mm-hmm. structure and then mm-hmm. you look at the pattern. It's like it's much more apparent, right? You're making it explicit, which is a really cool idea. Yeah, there's a lot more to say about that, but I think that's probably the easiest place to start to get a hold of and actually be able to make a difference for yourself is mm-hmm. you're, you're starting to be able to make sense of the invisible um, dynamics. Yeah, cool. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Marsha, this has been just so interesting and I think will be really interesting to to researchers and to anyone doing research or trying to drive change in mm. a collaborative setting. So agree. I'm glad thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey there, it's me, Aaron. And me, JH. We are the hosts of Awkward Silences, and today we would love to hear from you, our listeners. So we're running a quick survey to find out what you like about the show, which episodes you like best, which subjects you'd like to hear more about, which stuff you're sick of. 
and more just about you, the fans that have kept us on the air for the past four years. Filling out the survey is just going to take you a couple of minutes. And despite what we say about surveys almost always sucking, this one's going to be fantastic. So userinterviews.com slash awkward survey. And thanks so much for doing that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. <laughs>